Welcome to the MHI Business Intelligence Podcast, where we interview industry leaders to learn about their success strategies and insights. Gain unique insights into industry practices and an awareness of complex supply chain challenges and how to maneuver successfully. Culture has been defined as the very essence or soul of an organization. In the context of a remarkable organization, culture transcends abstract ideas and becomes a tangible force that resonates with people. It speaks to their core and ignites a sense of belonging. Rather than being merely a competitive advantage, culture becomes an absolute necessity for success. Today, we have the privilege of engaging in a conversation with two exceptional leaders who understand the transformative power of culture. First, we have Karen Norheim, the president and CEO of American Crane and Equipment Corporation and a distinguished member of the MHI board. Joining her is Gaurav Batra, the president and CEO of INA.AI and the co-author of the thought-provoking book, The Titanium Economy, How Industrial Technology Can Create a Better, Faster, and Stronger America. Gaurav, let's start with you. Tell us about your book and where this idea came from. So our book, The Titanium Economy, essentially uh, the motivation and the genesis of it was myself and my co-authors had served the industrial sector as a part of tenure at McKinsey for multiple decades. Um, and we all, I think, entered the uh, arena, not, I would say, being aficionados or enthusiasts about industrial companies. It just kind of fortuitously uh, ended up on our laps. And the more time we spent in the industry, we realized that there's a huge gap between perception and reality, right? The way the industry is perceived outside compared to its more popular counterparts in fintech or technology in general, uh, we realized it doesn't get its due credit. It's, uh, we use the phrase in the, in the book, it's underappreciated, undervalued, and, uh, and uh, un misunderstood. And I think literally every year of our experience kind of reinforced that theme over and over again. So... Uh, the notion of the book essentially was to, first of all, dispel some of those myths uh, and, and at least clarify that the reality is actually quite different from perception. Uh, it's not really like a rust belt, um, even though the popular um, narrative might suggest that. But for us, the more we looked at companies like Garen's company and several other companies who are doing really a, a fantastic job running healthy enterprises and then same token, nurturing healthy communities and economies in their footprints, you could clearly see that it's actually nowhere close to being a rust belt. It's actually what we call the titanium economy. It's very resilient, very strong, and very agile to kind of take US to the leadership in the next few decades. So that was the motivation, and that's the basic message we want to convey to the book. You mentioned Karen's company, for our listeners, that's American Crane, as one of the companies you looked into while writing the book. Karen, how do you influence culture change within the company? Well, first, before I even talk about culture change, I just want to say what a breath of fresh air uh, Gaurav's book is um, to have our industry highlighted uh, for those of us in there who feel it, it, it is really a great roadmap for looking to the future of how we can keep building upon um, the successes that are already there and just what that can do for us um, as a country and as an industry. So I love that. As far as influencing cultural change and, and from the leader perspective, you know, I like to call it being a gardener. As leaders, it's our job to make sure the environment that our people uh, work in allows them to thrive. And so I think of that as creating a garden, cultivating people, nurturing, 
nurturing your company, creating that culture that they are in so that they can succeed. Our role as a leader is really to get all of our individuals who work for us to be their best. And you can't do that unless you have an intentional culture. Uh, it is really a labor of love. It takes a lot of time and it's a lot of investment. But if you spend the time being the gardener, then you have the capacity and the ability to go fight those business battles as they come and, and actually do the work of, of what it is your company does. So really important. Um, the leader also um, sets the tone. We are the voice in front of what we do is watch. What we say is important. You know, We really are the ones that are setting that example. Uh, we can build that underneath us other ambassadors to emulate those same values and the same um, en environment to cultivate that. But really, it starts with us, and it's super important. Um, and, and right now, it is probably one of the things that you have no choice in doing. You must create a great place to work if you want to survive as you go into the future. How does your company ensure that your employees embrace and act out the desired core values and behaviors consistently? Well, when I think of culture, a lot of people talk about your core values. Well, well what the heck is that? Okay. So a culture is a way of life. It's the way you do things. It's the behaviors. I would say our core values are identified as specific behaviors that we want to encourage and emulate. Now, we're not perfect. We're not going to get all do this all the time, but we they are the behaviors that we know lead to great results. And so if you have a good culture, you have um, good behaviors with your employees, with your leaders. And when set well, that leads to more engaged employees, which can help things as, you know, as uh, impactful as your bottom line. So we're very intentional about that, lining it up with our culture. So those behaviors line up with what it means and what's important for us as a company. Um, our founder, uh, my father, always said the most important part of our business is our people. And so really that is our strategy is to let our awesome people be awesome and create that environment where they can thrive, they can do their best problem solving, they can do their best work, um, and just making sure that they have everything they need to be able to accomplish that. Gaurav, can you tell us about what role culture played in the companies you profiled? So uh, I think the companies we profiled in the book essentially were examples of where uh, they kind of go against the grain of popular perception of companies who have delivered fantastic results uh, for them individually in terms of financial performance, uh, who have built sustaining franchises in terms of, as Karen was talking about, like uh, a team, not just a singular executive or leader who's, who's powerful, but a team which is impactful and capable of uh, leading the company over a long amount of time. And then as a very easy or simple second order effect of that, having communities which are prospering in the footprints of these companies. So American Crane fit the bill completely. So that's why uh, American Crane was highlighted there. And there were a few other companies like Heiko and, uh, and Waste Connections, which are performing similar kind of uh, both fantastic financial performance, but at the same time building capability, generating a workforce and sustaining, capable, uh, sustaining communities, which are going uh, a long way in providing economic prosperity to different communities in the country. I love the fact that you talked about culture because the way we started off looking at this list was literally a very quantitative analysis of which companies have done well, right? We just simply said, close our eyes, let's pick the ones who've done really well and understand what's their secret sauce. Um, and there were several things which were very tactically different about these companies, like how did they m a how did they use technology, how do they serve their customers? But there was the clear softer part which came up from as we kind of dug deep and, and talked to leaders uh, in, in these companies to see what really made them differentiated cultures definitely came up as number one and and the, and the and the element of the culture which we found very interesting in these companies were they were the level of ownership 
in these companies of company of individual performance leading to company performance was just at a different level. Uh, to give you one example, uh, one of the companies we profiled in the case is Heiko. Uh, we went to the shop floor at Heiko and we talked to uh, the shop floor uh, operator there. And the shop floor operator could actually articulate to us very clearly what a good day looks like. And it sounds like a very simple element, but you'll be surprised how many times that's not true. It's tough to get to a singular definition of what it looks like. So as Karen was mentioning, uh, the role of a gardener and making sure that you're empowering other people, uh, like Karen, like uh, uh, Larry at Ico has done the same thing where he's empowered the team and they all are aligned over definition of success, what the right behavior is, what's the right outcome to drive. And when that cascades down to the front line, you see results as as we see with companies like American Crane and Heiko, where they are fantastic, uh, uh, fantastically resilient financial companies. But they, at the same time, then they are in, incul inculcating and building a dense strength of executives within them, which can actually lead the company in the future. And hence, they're not companies which do well only for one year. They're companies which do well over decades. If I could add... So I, I love this concept and it's really, when you're thinking about culture, it's the long game, it's the long play, but it pays off. Um, I love the question of, you know, what does a good day look like? I think that's such a great thing for us all to contemplate as we're running our businesses. And then, you know, tying that all back in the long game, you know, we talk so much about talent right now and how hard it is to find people. And you say, well, what, how does your culture align with your strategy? Well, if you're trying to hire people and you're having any sort of difficulties, culture is all about retention of the people you already have and attracting the people that are, aren't yet there. So they really are intertwined. And um, yeah, I love this. The, the, I totally agree with this concept of it is it is a long game. We're in it for the long haul. And it's um, definitely the right perspective, I think, to look at the lens of this through. So what strategies and practices can be implemented to foster a culture that encourages innovation within an organization? The key to innovation, the key to successful problem solving, in my perspective, is the ability to bring people together who have different points of view, who can have constructive conflict and actually challenge each other and challenge their different ideas. That's how you really come up with the best solutions, right? You need to have people who have different perspectives looking at the, at, at the problem. So, you know, for us, we really focus on, this is our mantra, it's been our mantra last year, I'd say our goal mantra, um, Aminda mantras uh, for this coming year is this idea of, you know, make it easy, hashtag make it easy. Our toughest problems should be the ones that we solve with our customers. So we work really hard at removing, you know, whenever you solve a problem, you have two problems. The first is, the problem of working together. So we're trying to make it easy and remove that problem of working together so that our teams can, you know, we get rid of that friction that can just happen when you bring people together. And that lets us solve the second problem, which is the actual solution that we're looking for for the problem we're trying to solve in our business. So, you know, focusing on making it easy, getting that grease, if you want to say it on the wheels so that 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 innovation can happen. You, know, you do this through developing trust, through um, getting people to be able to be a little vulnerable. Um, it's really hard uh, uh, getting this concept, I like to say, of radical candor, where people can really challenge each other and help each other with their blind spot. And radical candor is caring about someone and giving them feedback, not just being a jerk and be like, I don't like that idea. You really have to cultivate that safe space where that collaboration um, can happen and growth can happen. Um, and then also, you know, we've done some things where we've, we've created an innovation lab. And this is something leaders can think about. So our innovation lab is 
um, you know, group of individuals cross section from our shop to our engineering department and service that come together. They're evaluating emerging technologies to try to bring them into innovation for us as a company. The key to that success is that we give them a space. It's a space where they can fail. They can try things. Um, and also um, we stay out of it. So as a leader, I am empowering them by not being in it and, and forcing them or saying, you got to go this way or not. We give them the chance to the pleasure of solving the problems themselves. So I think you have to kind of have a collaboration of you. You get people in a place where they're trusting. They're able to be vulnerable with, with each other. They're able to um, have these tough conversations about problems and what you're trying to have them work on. And then you also create places where people can play with technology, learn about technology, um, come up with fresh ideas, maybe fail a little bit or fail fast, if you want to say it that way, and then stay out of it as a leader to give them the chance to see what they can come up with. I think that yin and yang approach has worked really well for us, and it's something that we're trying to continue to cultivate and evolve. I think the only other thing I'll add is uh, there's also an element which I have seen. How do you incent people to have those discussions? So there's an element of having to say that it cultures, as Karen rightly said, customer-centric. Culture is where you we challenge each other with respect, and culture is where you get autonomy. The one place also I've seen it tactically uh some companies do a better job than others to make sure it's embedded is how they talk about, for example, an employee's performance. So when you're looking at employee's performance, to let's take the point of uh, uh, challenging others, do we have the conversation that, hey, how many times did Gaurav actually challenge an idea last, like over the last six months, the last 12 months uh, when we had the performance review? Um, I think embedding what behaviors you want in your culture across every piece of dialogue you have with your employees is very important. And that's one element I've seen where you folks have taken the concept of customer centricity in terms of what have you done in terms of being closer to customer and looking at new needs, uh, where folks will talk about how many times have we had challenging conversations, just so that the employees feel it's not just words on a PowerPoint, where that, hey, everybody wants to be an innovation-driven innovation company, but what they get valued for is also similar behaviors. So I think, uh, I think as Karen said, I think those ingredients are most important. And I think there is an element of making sure those ingredients make your daily vernacular as you discuss with, with employees what like a good day looks like or what, what good performance looks like. And so when you make these changes in corporate culture, how do you measure their effectiveness? Well, I use a combo of metrics and then a vibe. Um, so the metrics we look at employee retention, um, how fast are we, you know, pushing through our backlog, you know, other customer satisfaction surveys. And also if we do an employee survey, we're trying to always kind of get a pulse for how people are feeling. And then there's also the vibe. So I'm taking the vibe of my direct reports. How are they doing? If my top leaders are burnout, that means that the culture isn't doing very well because that means empowerment hasn't cascaded through. Um, and then also talking to people on the floor, talking to people in the office. Just kind of getting a general sense of, of how is it going. So I'm always, you know, asking questions, inquisitive, kind of taking a pulse check, you know, tapping into my emotional intelligence to kind of see what's going on. Um, and so really that combination of metric and vibe is the way that we have approached it. Okay, tons of great insight on how a leader can encourage this culture within an organization. But how should leaders conduct themselves, walk the walk, if you will, to be a role model for a strong culture? I think self-awareness is crucial as, you know, just as a leader in general, you have to be able to be, you know, critical of yourself and, and self-aware of when you make mistakes and be accountable, right? If you want others to be accountable, you have to do so as well. Um, and I also think that, you know, if you're a leader of an organization, most certainly we typically all have confidence and sort of um, what I want to call self 
belief in what we're doing. But if you yin and yang that with a little bit of paranoia and self-doubt, that that is a complement of ego and humility that really can work well. So that self-awareness and and also being able to say, okay, well, I didn't do that great this time, but I'm going to try something different. If you want people to emulate that, I think it's super, super important that you do it also. Um, and also different people react to different things. There's not a, a one size fit all for when you talk to people. Some people want, you know, if, if, if they want to feel like me as the leader of the company, care about them, they want me to come and talk to them and, and make sure I say hello. Other people might be more interested in how I look at their work and the type, do I give them critical feedback? You know, so you have to really um, be willing to evaluate. And, and we're always growing as leaders. This road to success never is done. So I just think it's it's super, super important to have that self-awareness. Also, you know, I think as leaders, it's important to have impulse control. Um, you know, uh, we were talking earlier before we were prepping. This is about shiny object syndrome and wanting to... to so, you know, whether it's that kind of thing or impulse control, what we stay in, because we can really influence people with with our comments and our actions. So that's a part of being self-aware. I think also having emotional stamina, which I consider part of having grit, being able to be emotionally resilient in situations and we're human beings, things can push us in certain ways. But you have to really be able to, to understand yourself and be self-aware about how you show up in different situations. Um, and then also being curious and, and comfortable with the fact that you're not going to know everything. Like I may be the CEO of my company. That doesn't mean I know every single thing that or that I understand every single piece. It, it means I know I have people that I can trust and be confident in the areas where I have blind spots. So if you're not self-aware and you don't know where your own, own blind spots are, um, you know, that that can be a problem. And being curious helps, I think, on so many levels, but also specifically in that one. Amazing. This next question is for you, Gaurav. Why do companies with a strong corporate culture tend to have higher employment retention rates? Everybody wants to be a part of a success story. And if a company is typically doing well, you would expect employee retention to be higher. But that's to be in a, is a very like superficial way of understanding it. If you peel a layer deeper, why are the companies doing better? That's where the culture comes in, right? That's where the culture that each employee is showing ownership in their particular area. They, are drive, they know what success looks like or what success is meant to for the company. So they're driving it at a daily level, at a weekly level, at a, at a monthly level uh, on their particular elements. And we needed collaborating across teams to kind of go get things done. So from that perspective, I think uh, culture is a core element of it. Uh, I think sometimes we confuse correlation with causation. We, we say that, hey, because the companies are doing so well, that's why the employee retention is high. Um, but uh, at least our learning is that uh, when you peel the onion back, it's actually causation because the employees feel part of something bigger, part of something which is aspirational, part of something which they believe in. That embeds the culture in them and in their day-to-day -day lives. That's a classic example, in my opinion, of when we sometimes do the quantitative analysis and we say, oh, it's highly correlated, but we completely miss the causation that the reason why these companies are doing well is that they have embedded a culture which is truly differentiated and and most importantly bulk of the workforce kind of kind of embodies it and, and practices day to day okay so it really is the culture driving that success karen american crane has had a bit of a culture shift in 2018 can you walk us through that well we in 2018 was when we started our cultural reboot i would call it um, that was around the time of me taking over leadership of our company from our, my father. Um, my father was an immigrant from Norway um, and, you know, really set us up for success. And we had a great culture and we kind of called it old Viking laws because it was just spoken 
and shared from generation to generation, right? Like it was an unspoken set of rules of how we were going to conduct ourselves. And, and I, I felt that, you know, my dad, he wasn't going to be around forever and he's turning the business over to me to run. How do I solidify that founder's legacy, that great culture? How do I keep it so that we don't lose it when he's no longer involved in the business? And that really drove us to start that cultural change, which involved defining what were those behaviors? What were those values that really made us successful? Which got us onto that path of back to the idea of grit matters, perseverance, heart and integrity and really identify that as something for us as a company. Um, and so we started that in 2018 and, you know, we've had success now. Here we are in, in, in 2023 and every year we're evolving, but it goes back to my concept of gardening. It's never really done. This is a cycle. You come up with a plan, you, you implement, and then you're planting and growing and nurturing and harvesting, and then you do it all again. It is a long play. It is a long game. It is a cycle. It is not something um, that ends, you have to do things like pruning and weaving and you have to, you know, um, change direction and, and be flexible and, and do it, you know, constantly. So I think it's really important that we remember that we have to cultivate our businesses and using this idea of cultivation versus we're going to just reboot and the culture is the way we need it. And it's going to stay that way. It's going to evolve where we were in 2018 is a different place than where we are today. And we've evolved in a great direction because we've been really intentional about defining what it means to be working for, you know, being a part of our organization. And we put a lot of intentional time and effort into creating that. So unfortunately, I can't give you a timeline because, you know, it does depend on where your starting point is. And also it never really ends. It's just the slow evolution of, of incremental changes and, and moving along that pathway of your journey as a company. I would love to ask a follow-up there. Um, you talked about like defining culture, which I think is critical. I think that's one step which many leaders, uh, I think from role statements down to what a culture would mean. How much of a role composition of your leadership team uh, kind of changes in that, or is that a lever in kind of influencing culture change? Because that's one thing I've seen sometimes, uh, particularly leaders I've met in the industrial space, be resident, resistant of, which is sometimes some folks are not part of the culture which you want to cultivate for the future. And I think uh, that's one thing I do give give them a poor score on is that the, the decisiveness of such, uh, on those kind of actions is sometimes not as uh, not as what it should be. So just yet it would be curious on your uh, just experience with composition of your leadership team and how you think about their role in the culture transformation? Well, I like to think of myself as chief reminding officer, where I'm reminding everyone why we do this, what's important, what is it? So it, part of my job is to pull that team together and get them on board. Fortunately, I've been able to do that with our team and we've actually grown our leadership team a little bit. Um, but, you know, there's effort in that. Absolutely. I have to teach them how to buy in and, and to understand why this this is important for them. Now, luckily, we had a general concept, you know, this idea um, of what my father had always said to all of us. And a lot of our the other good thing I have at our company is we have very long retention. So the leadership team and myself, we all have tenure. Many of us are well over 20 years. Some of us are over 30 years. So that retention makes it a lot easier when the culture has been refined and they're and they're in that space. Um but I did have to kind of get them to understand, well, why can't everybody just know this? We've been, And I'm like, well, you've, you've been here so long. It's part of what you're doing. But we have to be able to tell it to new hires and to other people. So bringing them on board, being that chief reminding officer. And then also, as I said, we've, we've evolved on, on, on how we've done this. And every year as there's more buy-in and more thing we build upon it, we add that next piece into it and, and kind of keep it going. And listen, if you, you know, 
not in 2018 and where we are today, don't not all the same people work for us. And sometimes you got to do a little weeding. One toxic employee can ruin a culture because they can hijack the behaviors that you value. And, and now they are changing your culture into, into values that are theirs. And that's definitely not what you want. So you have to, it's either you take control or someone else is going to be doing it. And maybe it'll be good like we were before with my father's or maybe not. So now by having it defined by, again, constantly reminding and keeping it top of mind and trying to keep it fresh, which I do with ambassadors. It's not all on my shoulder. You know, I'm building those leaders and getting them to, to buy in. Um, it helps to perpetuate and keep keep that going. But it's such a great point. Um, not everybody buys into it. and not. But then again, maybe not everybody needs to be there. You have to really be thoughtful about this. Um, we really do. It's super important. And it's a space where it is sort of the soft, feely, you know, space. Our company is a lot of engineers, a lot of, um, you know, fabrication and technical, mechanical know-how and electrical know-how. But we still have to pay attention to this. This doesn't mean that we we can't focus on making sure we're successful in this the space of culture. Karen, Gaurav, you both have been incredible. I want to thank you for your insight and thank you for joining us today. At MHI, we are happy to give you resources to take your supply chain leadership to the next level. Thanks for making us part of your professional development journey.